You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs. Hello, everybody. This is Kelly Daniels. And I'm Dan Lipman. Welcome to Personal Rejection Letter. Hello. How are you? I feel welcome. I know you're talking to other people out there, but they can't yeah, answer back. So uh... I, I could care less how you're doing, Kelly. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Um, so, hey. What's going on, man? You sound good in the voice. This is the um, this is the the writers living the dream writing retreat episode. But before we do that, Kelly, by the sound of that, we're talking about revisions. You're first, Kelly. Oh, that was fast. Hey, I have a good revision this time. I um, the the one I want to revise is the AWP special episode. Um, okay. And I just listened to it the other night or day. And I really missed one opportunity. Uh, I talked about, I don't expect you to remember, but I told the story about going to New Orleans and driving yep. there and listening to Johnny Cash on the way, and it was super cool. Um, and uh, I said that I went with this poet, with this, you know, this really good, crazy poet with big red hair, big red beard before beards were hipster kind of things. And, um, I, and I didn't even mention his name, Mark Petrakowski. He's a writer. He's out there. He lives in... Upstate New York. He's got, you know, his website and blogs and has books for sale. So uh, check him out on Facebook. Um, good Mark guy Petr- and good writer. Mark Petrakowski. I think he calls himself on Facebook Mark C. E-T-S-I. As a kind of way to joke about how hard it is to spell his name. And But uh, anyway, shout out to Mark. And sorry to miss your name the first time, but making up for it now. Would he take my friendship if uh, if I offered it on Facebook? I betcha. I betcha he would. I don't. He, he would. didn't strike me as super picky. I mean, we were buddies. You know, that ended up being hurtful to me. What? Even if he was super picky, wouldn't he still befriend me on Facebook? Well, it's not that he wouldn't like you. It's just that if he's picky, he may just not know who you are. And some picky people just don't want to uh, expand their friendship, you know, to people that they don't know in person. You know, if you do become his friend, he, you might get an annual invitation to his croquet party. There's a great croquet party. Really? Where does he live? He lives in upstate New York, maybe Rochester or something like that. I knew him in Atlanta and he used to do the croquet party back there and he would like have uh, koozies, like beer koozies printed with uh, Alice in Wonderland quotations. Oh yeah, and he would do just he'd do it himself and uh, give them out at the party, and then you'd have like this croquet tournament, which I would get too competitive about and ruin the whole spirit of everybody's just having fun, and I would get angry and like start, you know what I mean? And shocking, so, yeah. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> so better for me not to join the just to watch the the croquet yeah. party and just enjoy the party part. But um, I picture uh, that's what I picture going on in upstate New York, croquet parties and homemade beer koozies. It's exactly what I imagine over by the Finger Lakes. Yeah, that's right. Instead of my revision this year, this this week, Kelly, I would like to just ask you also about the AWP. I thought about this. You went to the AWP. I did not go. How was it this year? Well, it was good. I was uh, for me in in some ways it was all business. uh, But uh, me and uh, uh, Joe Bonomo got to uh, we met up at a genuine dive bar that we found online and it was in walking distance and it was called uh, ivy and coney and ivy coney and ivy and the ivy part referred to uh wrigley field um i realized when i got there because it was somebody a chicagoan opened Mm -hmm. this little bar and they had hot dogs coney dogs for sale 
Um, and it was just a genuine, really hard to find because there's no sign out front, just a tiny thing on some door smashed between two other businesses. And it was the upstairs, you know, the thin, the, the really narrow um, stairway going up into this kind of shadowy second floor, you know, big city, how cities right. are like that. And it was a cool bar. Um, but I was sick because I, I just had a stomach bug that all these students at Augustana are, had been talking about, and I thought I escaped it. Turned out I didn't, and I started, like, barfing and stuff at 2 a.m. And so I spent a lot of time in my hotel room just being sick um, and the housekeeping kind of knocking on the door and walking in while I'm there in my underwear just going, Meh. and um, so a lot of it was like that for me and then walking around a little zombie-like. But for all that, Professor it, Daniels, you're still in your underwear <clears throat> accidentally again. I, the cleaning lady doesn't call me Professor Daniels, actually. Well, what, do you, what do you make her call you? She, I don't. I, we don't have a kind of name-to-name -name relationship. Okay, fact, I don't know how you do it. All right, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> I did leave her a dollar and the change that I happened to have in my pocket after several days of staying there, which I think is a pretty insulting tip. Yes, but for I didn't, sure. But I did not uh, have any other cash, and I wasn't going to leave her a twenty. That seemed like too much. So for a couple of days, I think twenty is not too much. But we should—that's another topic for another time. This is this is a new world. How to tip? How I to think? If yeah, I'm I'm very good at tipping bartenders in restaurant and waiters, but for all the other tipping areas, I never quite feel quite comfortable with it because I didn't do those jobs, and I have a right. hard time empathizing with anybody who's not just exactly me. So, so we should say that uh, Joe Bonomo, your partner at the dive bar, is is going to be a future guest coming up pretty soon. Oh no, we already had him on. Oh, it's so confusing. Joe yeah. Bonomo from the last episode. We will have already had him on by the time you are listening to this. Now we'll have. That's the future perfect tense. You don't get to use that very often. Very rarely, yeah. But not if you're podcasting out of order. Then you get to use it all the time. Yeah. Well, I'm jealous that I didn't get to go to the dive bar, but I'm happy to have missed AWP. Why are you happy to have missed AWP? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a cousin of mine uh, who said something completely different, but it's along these lines. I, I really love bicycle riding, riding a bicycle, and I love teaching, and I love writing. But I don't, I don't like being in large groups of people who also do the same thing. I don't like being in large groups of bicycle riders or teachers or writers. And I think large groups of writers sort of is the least comfortable of all three of those. All that for all the stuff we talked about on the episode, the the weird jealousy, the nervous tension, everybody's sort of looking at everybody else. It's, it's unpleasant. Yeah, I guess. I think you're <laughs> envious because you don't get funding. I think if I would have said, "Hey, I just got a grant, all expenses paid to AWP," I have a feeling you would have gone. I'm actually I'm very wrong. confused why the Personal Rejection Letter Foundation only sent you and not me to AWP. That's another. <laughs> we, should again, probably, another. we should probably talk about talk to the brass about that. So today's topic, and actually this is a good lead into the whole jealousy, ill feelings. The today's topic is the writer's colony, the writer's retreat, which is another place that I have been shut out of, but I'm very interested in it. I've done a lot of research on it, but you have been in some writing colonies. In fact, you went to McDowell, I believe. Is that correct? I did, yes. And one of the things that we're going to talk about later on, I Googled this and maybe you've got some insight too, is, is sort of tips on how to get into writing colonies. Not that there are any rock hard tips. There's nothing cut and dry about it. So There's it's a, a tipping, this is a tipping episodes then. then. 
Right. But you'll have some empathy because you've been to a writer's colony. <laughs> tipping. Notice that it was a wordplay. There's two mm. kinds of tipping. Right? At least two. The, uh, the writer's colony. This is, I don't, uh, I don't want you to bear the brunt of having to tell all your writer colony anecdotes, but I myself, let me just get this out on the table, though I have applied to some of the biggies, Yaddo, McDowell, some of the ones you've heard of, several others, I've never been accepted in. Some sort of bias against you. Yeah, they have this sort of like slant in accepting um, writers who are producing quality. And I find that unfair. <laughs> I'm doing my best. But um, also, I would appreciate a vacation and I would appreciate people making meals for me. But so let's sort of like outline it a little bit. The writer colony experience. You, you send them your project proposal, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You send them a sample, or very, there's various uh, other applications. There's various differences in all the applications. But basically, when they accept you, you get to commit to, depending on the place, several weeks or even several months. You're given a place to stay. And uh, I believe you're given three meals or two meals. Is that always the case? Um, it isn't always the case. They come in every variety from super low budget, some, you know, 24-year-old farmer, organic farmer, has an extra barn out back and he wants to be a writer or artist and decides to start a retreat. And so you get to go there, and as long as you work on the, on the, bar, on the farm for four hours a day, you get to stay. And then, you know what I mean? There, anything from that to the Yaddo and McDowell, which is the high cream of the crop in a way, and, that, um, and then they, they just take care of you and treat you like a baby. So... There's a wide, wide variety, and there's also a wide variety of, you know, McDowell doesn't take money, but they'll send you a kind of, you know, donate money to us for the rest of your life once you go. But at the time, they won't accept money because that's the whole point. You have to be invited. And then there's others who do accept money and demand money, and those get less and less competitive. So if you want to go to one, Dan, find one that charges you, like, hotel prices, and I'm pretty sure that you could probably squeeze in since they take anybody who has money. Well, I've always also been told that if you apply during an off season, you have a better chance. And I've always, <clears throat> I've always applied for like the summers, which I think is when everybody's doing it because I have summers off as do you. Yeah. Um, y- you went and all the people that I know usually go in the winter because I think, I don't know if it, it's just a little bit less competitive. Not that there's not that it's easy to get in, in the winter, but that is one tip that you apply during an off season. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, Academics also do get winter break off, so there's, they probably get a, a bit of an application rush there, but nothing compared to the summer. I mean, if you really want to go at the, the off season, it would be right in the middle of the semester, like, you know, when nobody who teaches has off. And so that is probably the highest uh, right. probability. But uh, yeah, I went in the winter and... Um, I have applied to a few of them in the summer and didn't get in. I got into one called the Vermont Studio Center that wasn't as good an, an experience, but uh, I got in, but I had to, and they gave me something called the Artist Scholarship, which was like a discount of, so I had to pay. I had some money from my college, so I didn't wasn't pulling out of pocket, so I didn't feel too bad about it. But I also realized that the Vermont Studio Center had like over 100 fellows while I was there. Um, are, the fellows, are the fellows ladies ever? Yeah, the fellows are ladies sometimes. Um, it can be confusing. Yes, that's true. This is a sort of you know postmodern, post postmodern um, 
view of fellows, which is the the non-gendered fellow. Right. Um, they. Cis I just kind of I'm just going to call the fellows they. Okay. Um, but don't, yeah, go ahead. Well, <laughs> I, the McDowell colony has uh, 30 units, and they keep it under their fellows. At any point, are under 30, not years old, but that's how many right. they have. <laughs> Whereas the uh, Vermont Studio Center, which asks money for everybody and they need the money to keep going they have like just a ton of people and so the quality is just very very different in terms of how well-known people are where they are in their careers and how serious they are um and the facilities aren't aren't the same my point being that if you just want a place to go and work um some of them just have a kitchen and you just bring your own food or you go into town and buy stuff for the kitchen and you get to to uh make your own stuff so there, there's a lot more than just the biggies. And um, the the thing about Yaddo and, and McDowell is that those are resume lines. Like getting in there makes you a mark. You know, that's just something you get to brag about, like, you know, getting a, a story prize or something like that. But um, there's others who people haven't heard of that are probably pretty nice that are probably not nearly as competitive. But you can get your work done. So uh, I guess I would encourage you dan and and anybody out there who wants to go is don't just go with the famous ones you've heard of look around and find one that you know the uh national parks the american national park service whatever yeah they have uh they have artist fellowships (laughs) in most of their parks they have yeah they just have like a they have like a cabin somewhere in like you know glacier national park or wherever and um they end up putting artists in these places and you apply, you go there and I think you need to bring your own supplies, but you get a free place to live in the middle of nowhere in beautiful kind of place and, you know, stay for a month or two. Um, so I think, there's some I think cool the writer, ones. Uh, Edward Abbey famously uh, did that for a while. I think he was like a fire lookout and the only, the only thing he had to do was look out for fires yeah. somewhere in Alaska and he got a lot of his writing done up there. Jack Kerouac did that, I believe. And I think he purposely didn't bring any alcohol and he was an alcoholic. So he was up there basically just jonesing for booze for the whole period of time. And I think what he wrote was just about like, just constant, like I don't have any alcohol and what am I going to do? Right. So watch out, bring your own alcohol. If you're bring your own alcohol, listen, tip number two, if you're going to one of these national park places for the love of God, bring your booze. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of them, and um, they the problem for me is that applying is essentially takes about as m- much work as conceiving of drafting and getting a say short story in good enough shape to submit to a magazine. I mean that that's about how much work. That's just the applications are difficult and time consuming. And so I, I always want to put some applications out there every year to get in, but I almost never do it because it's like, okay, I can work on my novel or I can spend the next week or two working on this application so that I can work on my novel. And it's some, you know, it, I think it's worth it, but it doesn't always feel worth it. So well, anyway. As somebody who has gone to one, let me let me tell you what I envision, and then you tell me how right I am. I envision that you're given a cabin, and that you get up in the morning, and you are given breakfast, and then you write and or nap. There's no internet, I'm hoping. Then you write and or nap from lunch to dinner. Then 
in the late afternoon, I imagine all the artists get together and have sex with each other <laughs> till dinner. And then there's drinking and debauchery until the morning. How close is that? It's pretty right on. Well, I should say that the, the Vermont Studio Center was totally different from the uh, from McDowell. Um, but let's, uh, hmm, should I, I mean, do you want to hear about the two? Yes, I mean, I that... do, yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. First off, the first one I went to is Vermont Studio Center. I had to pay at least part of uh, part of the fee. There was a whole bunch of people there. Um, all meals were in a big central cafeteria sort of building. Um, beautiful place, by the way, um, near Johnson County State University, where they have an MFA in Vermont. It's a tiny little town. There's like one pizza place and like three or four other businesses. Um, mountainy kind of. There's like a really beautiful stream going by. Um, and uh, they give you a place to s- sleep, which is a communal sort of like a bedroom in an old kind of like student ghetto-y kind of a accommodation, if that makes sense. Like an old Victorian that will have like six or seven different people living in it. Okay. But so you they, get your own room. Yeah. They give you a room with a shared bathroom and, but that's not where you write. And then they yeah. give you a writer studio. Now Vermont studio center had a, all the writers were in one building and it was a sort of remodeled old, like long, thin building. And there's a hallway and about, 15 doors or something like that. And each door goes into a tiny little studio. So like about, you know, six foot by eight studio, just big enough for a desk and has a big window looking out over the stream. And it's very nice. And there's an internet ethernet. And it just, for me, I got very little work done. The little cubicle kind of thing with all the other writers just on, on either side of the, the drywall walls, you know what I mean? Right. And I could hear him walking back and forth, and I start thinking, I should go knock on so-and-so's and see if he wants to get a beer. You know what I mean? And then you are you also have internet, so you're playing on the internet. And like, I just, it wasn't that kind of, I mean, it, if I were more disciplined, I would have gotten plenty. And I got, I got some writing done, but it wasn't a an amazing experience that way. Now, McDowell, we're going yeah. to a different. McDowell is set in a, somebody's farm, former farm. The, the McDowell person who was a composer. And by the way, these, these retreats are not just for writers. They're writers, music composers, um, photographers. Yeah. Painters, sculptors, performance artists, filmmakers, every, anything that where you create, they don't let actors in because actors don't create things. I thought no, that, just... yeah, they take what other people have created and sort of riff on it, but they don't, uh, I thought that was an interesting distinction. Yeah, so. I, I, I always, uh, I always am one of those people who says there's one. You got one creative person in the whole, or one creator in the whole film crew, and that's the screenwriter. Everybody else is just interpretive. And the, and yet the writer in the film is the lowest ranked person in the whole operation. But you hey. don't even get invited to the Academy Awards. Ain't mm. that always the way? Ain't it? Um, so McDowell, big kind of sprawling farmland with individual artist studios scattered throughout each one is its own thing and they all have different specialties and they're for different kinds of artists. Some of them, like if you're doing sculpture, there are the people that do those like big, like 40 foot tall sculptures, you know, that you see in like parks and stuff and cities. 
those people need like welding areas. And so they have, some of them are, are set up for that kind of thing. Others are just little gnome. Mine was a little gnome cottage, just straight out of some kind of a gnome fantasy. Um, and it was big enough. There was a grand piano, a big long desk, a little de- a little bed to sleep on. Did you have, did it have a list of like who the other artists that yeah. had stayed in that space? They're called tombstones. They're tombstones shaped pieces of wood that everybody writes the year, the the period that they were there, and their discipline and their name, and it, and they cover the walls of the studio. So any anybody we'd have heard of? Oh uh, yeah. Totally. Um, in my particular studio, well, I know Rick Moody. He's not the most famous person, but he's recognizable. He was funny in that he wrote for his discipline. You ready for this? You ready to laugh? Hold on. I'm sitting down. Go ahead. His Instead of saying writer, he said liar. Oh, that is, that you good? know, it's funny, but there's a profundity there as well. It, I'm making fun of it a little, but it was, I kind of liked it. it. It worked for the you know what I mean? It didn't come off as cute. It came off as, eh, that's good. Um, <laughs> and I think uh, the person who did um, Thornton Wilder, my town, our town, yeah, I think he was in my studio, or maybe he was in just in somebody else's studio, but I You know what? Put him I happen run. to know. He was in Molly's studio. He was in every studio. I, I think he, he came all the time, though. I think right. that he was just like coming, going there couple times a year just well he's the writer i most associate with uh with mcdowell colony yeah so i think that's right yeah he's a big one and there's some other james baldwin was there a fair amount he's hot at the moment yeah he's making a comeback kind of like him and uh uh what's his name well i'm ruining the jokes i can't think of his name somehow but the guy that Donald trump thought was still alive Oh, Frederick Douglass. Yeah, Frederick Douglass is like, oh, yeah, that guy's great. Yeah, he's, he's doing he's, great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, funny, not funny. But um, so, yeah. So, anyway, here's the McDowell Colony. There's a central house. That's where the dining room is. That's where you get breakfast and lunch. Um, and, again, there's only a few fellows. And then there's a big area, like, for play. And it's like a pool table and a little stage kind of area. And there's like board games. Everybody wants to play these creative little games, um, you know, like charades-y kind of stuff. And uh, everybody was talking about Werner Herzog and Philip Glass. Every single. That's how I picture it. That's what I imagine. All of, and then there was like mostly millennials and boomers. And almost everybody, there. everybody was all these different, you know, shades of skin tone and everything. Almost everybody, 95% of everybody was talking about prep schools in New England <laughs> about that right. was their shared experience. And like, oh, you guys are all rich fuckers. I get it. Doesn't matter. Like, you know, everything else, you look super diverse, but like, this is not a diverse group at all. That's interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, prep schools and then Ivy League college. And um, that's sort of the the standard. And then you, I kind of realized, oh, that's... These are our national artists. These are just the rich kids who were kind of born into tons of privilege. And um, which, you know, they were nice people. Um, although there was like, instead of playing pool, I really, I'm going to pin this on the millennials. And I hope we don't lose any of our millennial listeners because that's that's the future, Dan. You gotta, we really afford you, to lose them. You got to appeal to that group if you're going to do anything in this world. Uh-huh. Um, they... 
instead of playing pool, they did this game that all obviously they had all learned in like fraternities and sororities where you use your hands to throw, to roll the balls at the other balls, like to knock them in. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's, it's like holding the stick is too much. Yeah. Uh, so you use your hand, but you can't, but it's a speed game. So you have to run around the table and grab the white ball before it stops rolling. And you, you can't, you lose if all, if all the balls stop rolling before you make your move. Mm-hmm. And so you're, it's this running around the table. But the problem is that it's incredibly easy as soon as you, the learning curve is very short. And then everybody gets to basically the same level of skill because it's not really a very skill-oriented game. It's kind of like tic-tac-toe. Like, you know what I mean? As soon as you figure out the basic tic-tac-toe thing, then you're not really better than the other guy because everybody knows how to win at tic-tac-toe. You just have to go first. I'm pretty good at it, though. Yeah, good. Um, But anyway, it was sort of like, and that was, here's a little bag on the millennials. I thought nobody wanted to play pool because it was hard. Because they weren't yeah. good at it. It took a lot of practice. And so they had this, they invented this other game that was very popular. And if you wanted to play with that crew, you had to do that game. And so it was fun, you know, just a drinking game, really. And uh, so. I'm bad. And th- this would happen after the dinner hour? Yeah. And people, every mm-hmm. night, somebody would do a, like a reading or a performance of their, whatever they do or, or their art um, for the rest of us. All volunteer, just set up by, you just signed up on a little sheet. Um, Everybody's bio, the list of artists. And also they don't come in like big groups. It's like they're constantly showing up and they're constantly leaving. So new people are, they're very much, the life cycle was very much kind of apparent in that you got there and you're a newborn. Everybody looks at you, you're cute. Oh my gosh, blah, blah, blah. You're innocent. And then there's like a middle age when you're hitting like week two or three where you kind of know what's going on. There's new people coming in, old people have left. And then you're getting toward the end of yours and you're at, and you stop paying attention to the new people coming in because you know, you're not going to get to know them anyway. And you're kind of sad, but you're also tired and sort of ready to go. And then you leave. And that's why you sign the thing called the tombstone because it really is a, feels like a, a death. Um, so, uh, Anyway, and I'm, how long did you do it for? Three weeks? No, mine was five weeks. Oh, five weeks. That's a long time. I was offered six weeks, but I, but I would have had to leave my newlywed, my new bride um, alone in America, in the Midwest on Christmas after having lured her from Italy, the Venice area in Italy to America. Yeah. And like, as soon as she gets here, I'm like, hey, I get to go to... The McDowell colony for six weeks. And you also had you you didn't know her before you picked her out of the catalog either. So no, you still had to get just, to know her. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, and we should also say, speaking of wives, that the reason you and I know each other is because my wife, Molly McNett, the writer, was all was at McDowell at the same time you were there. And you guys met first. Yep. That is absolutely true. We, yeah, we were the two uh, Midwesterners. We were the hillbillies. Yeah. And that nobody else would talk to us because they were all from New York City couple people from Los Angeles, um, you know, and so uh, we were from Rock Island and Oregon. Oregon, Illinois. Correct. Yeah, so that's why I'm certainly hoping that I heard about all the artists having sex with each other isn't 100% true. But I did, when I, you know, when I I sent her off, I said, go ahead and make some friends for me. And she did do that. So I I got a lot out of it, even though I didn't get in. 
I didn't notice if the if there was a lot of sex going on, um, it was kept under the radar. Um, and part of the thing is is that it was this little mix of okay, there's only twenty six or twenty seven people at any given time, and there's a mix of baby boomers, millennials, and so unless there's going to be a lot of very intergenerational affairs going on, each age group only had like five or six options. And if you don't happen to feel attracted to one of the five or six options, they, anyway, I'm sure that there's some, some, uh, hot sex going on here and there, but I don't, I think that it's exaggerated to say that it was just, it's always this big, uh, um, sex deal. Well, I think that that's probably, you know, it's also, it also has to do with the era. So the, a lot of the story, the storied yeah. past that you hear of these writing colonies are from the seventies and the late sixties and stuff. And it just was a lot more sex back then anyway, among strangers. Also possibly it's more of a Yado thing. Maybe. No, I think that also the, the generational thing, um, I was actually sat down and not sat down, but I heard from somebody, very well-known writer who was there, a woman, um, and who was telling me how that used to be male dominated and it was like a bunch of whiskey drinking tough guy writer types, you know, like the Raymond Carver era. Right. And they would um they would have sex with the young wannabe writers and artists, young women. And now and it was all that was the whole vibe of the place. And now it's completely flipped and it's women dominated and so it just has more of a I mean, her thing was more like the Older women get to have affairs with the young studs, but again, I didn't quite see that happening. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I think the times are different. They ha- they are different. Well, and then the other thing I want to ask you about, and then this is maybe the last thing, the, the last tip that I have as somebody who has never been there but have talked to a lot of people about it is that the people who go and enjoy the experience more, get most out of the experience are those that are really prepared. They know exactly what they're going to be doing, what they're going to be working on. And they have very specific work habits set out to, to achieve that. Is is that what you found as well? I guess so. I got a lot done at McDowell. That's for sure. And part of it is just the boredom. There is an internet in uh, any of my, my studio. I couldn't get any sort of internet. And uh, I had no real cell phone reception unless I walked around the the grounds and found a spot. There's one computer in the main house um, that uh, everybody sort of waits in line to use to check in at home, like once a, an evening. That the lack of having a computer, having internet, was amazingly awesome for me. Um, and the boredom, like I did not. Okay, the people that didn't seem to be getting much done were the people that drove their cars there. And they would uh-huh. hop in their cars and just drive away and go do stuff. And now the ones who, the colonists who had, uh, who just got, got a taxi from the airport um, and just got dropped off. They give you a bicycle, by the way. There's this huge like barn full of old bicycles and you get to pick one and you put your little name tag on it. And that's yours for that, the time you're there. That and, sounds great. And there's a little town outside of McDowell. That is a little village, super upscale, like just multimillionaires live there and commute into Boston. But there's like kind of a cool little pub and a nice restaurant and a fancy grocery store. Um, It's a half an hour walk or a a 10 or 10 minute bike ride. For me, I just, there wasn't enough to do to not write. And so I just would uh, 
I was just cranking it out. Just tons and tons of, of work out of pure... I, I was making a fire every night, every day, and I would u- waste as much time as I possibly could, like, ma- making and kind of fussing with the fire. But you yeah. just can't do that for 12 hours straight. You know, right. you, eventually you get bored of messing with the fire, and it's got a good... You got a good layer of coals. You don't need to f- screw with the fire anymore. This was winter when all the losers go. Correct. And uh, winter was great. I mean, it really was. You could walk around the grounds a little bit, but, you know, it's not like that great. And you're just not going to do that for that long. So, uh, yeah, I think come in and having something to work on, but just make yourself so you have nothing else to do. That's how it worked for me. Right. Um, oh, and by the way, just a quick this doesn't matter much, but I didn't sleep in my studio. There was a little bed for naps, but everybody, almost everybody, unless they had one of these really deluxe studios that have its own apartment, the most people had a different sleeping quarters from their art studio. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just had a little room in a, a bed in a building with a bunch of other people. And that was just where I slept and showered. And then and then I would make my way to the breakfast area, get a little buffet breakfast, go to my studio, take my bicycle, ride to my studio. Because it's like, these things are all like a mile apart. So they're like, there's no uh, nobody near you. And uh, and then they bring your lunch in a little basket. And each basket goes with each studio. So you have a little sign on it that's like this cool thing that somebody... And they're, everything is sort of handmade by the artists over the years. And they bring you like a really nice, like a bento box. And there's like a tea maker, like one of those like electric tea things and a whole big thing of tea. So you're just like constantly drinking tea. It was groovy, man. It just was groovy. Yeah, I'm jealous. It sounds great. Um, Keep applying. Spalding You'll get Gray, in. Spalding Gray has a monologue where he, he spends a lot, one of the monologues, I forget what it's, which one it's called, but he spends a lot of time at the McDowell Colony kind of talking about it and talking about that life. Of course, he sort of. Well, he left. He did. He. He uh, he didn't like it. He left in the middle of it, right? But he's got some funny. He's got some funny observations about it. Yeah, I love Spalding Gray, and yeah, anything he has to say, I want to listen to. Um, but yeah, keep doing it. I I need to uh, apply for some. I want to replicate the experience for my students. Maybe is this a transition into our how's the teaching going thing, or is it? You think it's that's something that works for me? Hey Kelly, how's the teaching going? Oh sure. <laughs> well, f- we're having these three week. J terms, January terms that, and we're trying to figure out ways to use that. And what I want to do is use students is bring students on a retreat, like uh, experience for three weeks and that, then they'll get credit, you know, like three, four credits, but they're just going to be writing all day. And, and I want to find a place that maybe want to, something that can work as a, a retreat, maybe a place that already operates as one. And we could just like dominate it for that, those three weeks and just bring them out to our farm. Yeah, sure. Can they all sleep there? And do you they want to build little there. studios for everybody? We're going to need some hay to be bailed or whatever in exchange. But absolutely, yeah, they can all sleep in the basement. Mm, good. Sounds they like they can sleep idea. in the pens with the cows. Yeah, that, and that'll help their writing, I'm sure. Um, so anyway, that's kind of exciting. I want to. That's that should be fun. Yeah. So so in this J session, they only take one class. They're just yeah. taking this writing class. Yeah. So they and and it also on. is encouraged that this is a study away opportunity. So people will be going to you know, India or whatever, but I'm thinking just somewhere not too far away, driving distance where there's a facility that can, you know, accommodate say 10 students and uh, I'll be the kind of master of ceremonies and I can read their work that they're doing and kind of keep them going and on task. So anyway, we'll see if it works. 
yeah, I'm interested to hear what happens. Yeah. How about you? Any teaching uh, action going on? Anything else? Yeah, I've been teaching. I've been reading. I wanted to talk about the book, The Vegetarian. Have you have you heard about this by Han Kang or Han Kang? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I believe she's from um, South Korea. Um, it's, it's, was one of these books that's been reviewed by everybody very positively, very favorably. And, um, I think it won one of those big prizes, Uh Um, but, and it's about this woman who decides to become a vegetarian in South Korea and the mayhem, which ensues from that. So I thought it was kind of an interesting premise, but I have to say, I ended up being a little bit disappointed with it. Did you finish it? Um, I'm, I actually have, I'm going to, I'm about 40 pages to the end. It's written in three parts and, uh, I've gotten all the way through it. I actually, I was rushing last night to finish it so that I could say to you, yes, I'm done. But I, I, <laughs> Sorry I, I, more pages. I, I think I get the hang of it. It's not, I, I feel comfortable talking about it. There's a lot of like kind of metaphor involved and, um, it ends up being a lot about sex and, um, it, you know, the, the idea is that this woman doesn't just become a vegetarian, but she sort of wants to be a plant. Although really at, at, at well, bottom, she's, she's mentally ill. Yeah. But it's, I guess it's not as sexy to say this is a book about a crazy person. So they say, this is a book about, uh, you know, whatever a woman who wants to become a vegetarian. She's, she's totally withdrawing from the meat world, whether it's sexually or eating it or even being a part of it. She ends up wanting to be a tree. So the sex world is meat world in that the old kind of thing that your penis is meat. Is that the kind of metaphor that's at work here? There's a long section in the middle where uh, she's having an affair with her brother-in-law, but you know, they can't just describe, they can't just have sex. He's got to paint flowers on her and then he paints flowers on himself. And uh, it, it, it actually gets to be a little bit labored. And I think in the end, Sounds this insufferable, is- man. I mean, just, you're not selling me on this particular book, but hey. In the end, my, my, this is not a sophisticated comment, I was going to say, but I think it ends up being kind of dumb, and I'm, I'm disappointed with it, and uh, uh, I would not recommend reading it. Although, you know, some, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Sounds like a lot of, uh, I don't, the more interesting the idea, it almost seems like the worst of book. Like, there's, there seems to be a, because the, idea gets sold, not the writing of the book. That's a pretty broad statement, but the more I tend to avoid things that people call experimental because I just find it tedious and not very smart. Just It's like, yeah, I get it. You've come up with this way to stand out from everybody else, but the reason why you had to stand out from everybody else is because when you did what everybody else does, you didn't do it very well because you're not a very good writer and not a very deep thinker. And so you're trying to get attention by doing this little gimmick. I don't know. That's, that's a pretty, like I said, a broad statement and doesn't hold up in every case. That's my kind of bias is that, no, I want to, I understand, you know, you add a little sprinkling of sex in there, some illicit sex and hell, you got yourself a bestseller. They're reviewing it on every continent. Uh, Paint flowers on you. That seems like that would not be a good line. You know what I mean? I, I would imagine most women would see through that, that sort of like, well, the talk. other problem is that nobody in the book really behaves like any human beings you've actually met. But um, it's it, it's it's all beautiful, and it's all like the, the prose is quite pretty, and it's all uh, it's all we're just painting flowers on each other. And <laughs> oh look, his erect penis is where the stamen is painted, and I don't know. Wow, it goes on, and on and on. So I have to say, uh, we need one of those clever terms that uh, podcasts have, like you know, burn it, book it, read it, thumbs up, thumbs down. But this one's. A, <laughs> This one's a don't crack the binding, I would say. 
Okay. Sounds good. I'm reading uh, a, an oldie, but a goodie. Um, David Foster Wallace's uh, 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 supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. I love it. Yeah, me too. Fantastic. Especially the, the titular uh, uh, essay about his um, going on that cruise. It's It's cruise very, thing. very funny. He can be very funny. He makes himself into this comic character that actually reminded me of midge in um dog of the south just uh-huh. he makes himself this kind of uptight guy who's just too uptight to enjoy all the fun things that are and so he ends up making a fool of himself all the time um that we don't really believe but uh it's good um yeah it's just fun so to read smart. his description of his 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 the people he's eating the meals with and uh, you know i still remember that the the one girl gets a an envelope from her grandmother of the dollar bills with the with the not the dollar bills the twenty dollar bills hundred the no yeah. they're hundred dollar bills and she's a Mona and she's just totally snotty I love how open he is with the people he doesn't like right he's like really nice to some people and and he goes and then I liked everybody that I ate except for Mona <laughs> he just like talk really bashes her throughout the whole way pretty funny. It- I remember reading that when it first came out in, in Harper's and I just remember reading it and just being amazed. And, and I had also read his uh, essay on the Illinois state fair also in Harper's. And I remember thinking, this guy's brilliant. I, you know, he must be some old man who's, uh, and when I found out that he was basically my age, I remember he's older than us, Yeah, but not by much. He was born in 62. Um, he was 33 when he published, uh, the Harper's cruise ship thing. To me, I was picturing some, you know, 60 year old man. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was I still remember, you know, when he was sort of came on the scene. That's a great book. You're right. I'm glad you're, you're he's awesome. It. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan. And it's amazing how much it stands up. I mean, this essentially was written before the Internet. You would think that it's somebody who writes a lot about pop culture and about the contemporary scene would be so dated pre-Internet. And yet it feels so he you know, he. He he's making this like cruise ship. I guess things haven't really changed very much since 1992. Put it that way. Um, we still are a consumption obsessed society who's trying to get fulfillment from luxury, and it can't be done. That's sort of his deeper, his deeper. The more that you feed the needy yeah. little baby in you, the more that little baby needs, and that's I think what one of the big conditions of being a 21st century American right now is that we're just these big whining babies that are getting bigger and whinier. The more that we give, give ourselves little treats. And it's um, really encapsulated in sort of like how he makes fun of the the sandwiches and how, you know, precious those sandwiches are that come to his door. And then one day it's late or something and he goes, yeah, he starts finding fault with all this like luxury (laughs) that he's given because he's getting used to it and he gets, he expects more and more. And, uh, yeah, it's great. Great stuff. Yeah. He doesn't get a pickle on it or something. Yeah. Good. No, they give him dill. You have a good memory. Um, dill pickles, but he wants, he doesn't like dills. He wants a, uh, the butter ones or whatever. Okay. Right. And he, and he, they won't like replace it. And he just gets really angry about that. Like, (laughs) you know, I also remember, and this is just sort of a, out of nowhere, but I remember that he used the phrase slathered his bink, beak when he was talking about his zinc. Yeah. Slather the old beak with zinc. Yep. And that's, that's zinc another oxide. reason I thought he was, he was an old man because he used <laughs> these old man phrases sometimes. <laughs> I didn't realize yep. that was irony. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But Yeah. A lot of what he writes is is sort of sounds old man-ish and, and also just really like 
I, I'm right reading it on a Kindle, and so I get to highlight every word that I don't know and get the definition. There's a uh-huh. lot of like big fancy words in that, and that I kind of know what they mean. Um, but then getting the direct def- definition is gratifying as well. Although reading- you know what, he did one thing wrong. You ready for yeah. this? I mean, when you're going to write like David Foster Wallace, real kind of fussy, I suppose. Um, and verbose and eh, verbose, maybe that's not the right word, but, um, you sort of, you sort of need to get everything right grammatically. And he uses the word forthcoming. Forthcoming means something is on its way. It does not mean that you're being honest and straightforward. Okay. That's forthright. Forthright means that you're somebody who doesn't beat around the bush and that you, you say what you mean. Forthcoming means that you, that something is on its way. He uses forthcoming as forthright which is one of those little grammar pet peeves that some people like me get a little bit irritated by, although it's very common, that particular mistake. So David, even the great David Foster Wallace made a little, I love, he uses the word boner in its old, in its old state, in its old definition of being, being a mistake. He uses it over and over too. It's really funny without any sort of explanation. He's like, so that he, he did a, a pretty big boner there. I'm really surprised because one of his one of his great essays is about the the language wars and yeah. how to use the dictionary precisely and yeah. stuff. So I, I don't know. I'm going to do the research on this, Kelly. I'm not I'm not taking your word for it, but I'm going to look it up. Okay, so that's right. check her out. Check her out, and then maybe um, that will be. Uh, you can maybe in the next revision you could revise me. And uh, Kelly was wrong again, both about the word boner and about the word foster. You know, um, knowing that he had a new essay published was really one of the great pleasures of, of being a reader 10 years ago. Like, oh, this yeah. magazine's got a new, uh, even if it was in, uh, if it was going to be about the lobsters or whatever, and whatever yeah. the magazine was, you knew it was going to be fantastic. And uh, I really do miss his nonfiction essays, although I don't miss his fiction. I, I never no. really got into his fiction. Same here, but it also doesn't matter what the subject is of his essay. Totally right. am uninterested in, I mean, I just don't care what the subject is. It's just him. I want to hear this guy. Uh, that's where I kind of understood. That's the writer I want to be. I want yeah, to write about well, any sure. subject and have readers not care. I mean, a lot of people want to be, wanted to be David Foster Wallace. Sad that he d- killed himself. I think that sucks. I wish he was still yeah. around. Um, this should be a good hashtag. Are you taking down your hashtags? I'm writing them down. Yeah, yeah. I got Thornton Wilder, James Baldwin. Holy bugby, bugby, boo. Neato. We, hashtag heavy. Kelly, this was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Let's uh, do it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> God bless. Is that what people say? I don't know. God bless. Yes. All right. See you later, Dan. See you later, you listeners out there. Catch you next time. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hey, send us an email. We miss you. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Augustana College and WOG Student Radio. Gabe Tucker is our audio engineer, and Sub-Atlantic provides the theme music. You can reach Dan and Kelly on Facebook. We always welcome comments, critiques, suggestions, and especially praise. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you hear, do a podcast a solid and leave a review on iTunes. See you next time.